we have a mediator. And it's not Moses. It's the eternal Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf, and the Father always hears Him. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello again, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom begins a new eight-part series titled God's Sermon on His Name. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, chapters 33 and 34, God uniquely makes Himself known to the children of Israel, and He does so in the midst of their golden calf worship. Their sinfulness actually set the stage for the light of God's glorious character to shine forth in his interaction with Moses. This was a defining moment. The God of the universe revealed several of his attributes that describe his remarkably transcendent character and his willingness to forgive sinners. In essence, God gave to his people, as Martin Luther once said, a sermon on his own name. And Tom, to set a foundation as we begin this series, Why must we as Christians be eager and diligent to repent and confess our sins? You know, Bill, Exodus 33 really provides for us a a powerful illustration of the chasm that exists between every one of us who is a sinner and God. Whenever there's sin, there's separation. And this passage is a reminder that where there is unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our lives, There is, in fact, a real separation between us and God, just as there was between the Israelites who lived in the camp and God who set up outside the camp. And this is a reality, regardless of how we feel, how close we think we are to God. It's so important that we understand the reality of sin and separation and also the reality of divine forgiveness. Thanks, Tom. And friend, let's join our teacher now here on The Word Unleashed. Exodus 33 unfolds at Mount Sinai, where Israel has spent almost an entire year after the exodus from Egypt. During that year, Moses spent two lengthy periods on the mountain personally with God. In Exodus 24, he ascended the mountain and remained there with God for 40 days, And during that first set of 40 days, he received the law of God and instructions regarding the tabernacle. In Exodus 34, Moses ascended Sinai for a second time and remained with God for another 40-day period. But I want us to examine the passage that falls between those two 40-day times that Moses spent on Mount Sinai with God. I want us to examine it because it is God's self-revelation to His people. Now, obviously, the entire Bible is God's self-revelation. But what makes this passage unique is that it is God's self-revelation to His people in light of their sin. Here is God explaining how He will respond to the sin of His people. Now, to fully appreciate that amazing passage that comes in a couple of verses in Exodus 34, 
we really need to back up and get a sort of running start. And so I want to set the stage for us because to understand what God says about His name, the, the sermon He preaches on His name, we first have to understand what I'll call the ominous backdrop, the ominous backdrop, the sin of God's people. It begins in Exodus 32, verse 1, and runs through chapter 33, verse 11. Turn back with me to Exodus 32, verse 1. We are at Sinai. Moses has been up on the mountain for 40 days with God the first time. Verse 1 of Exodus 32 says, Now when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The people grew tired of waiting for Moses. Now, remember that Moses has been with them constantly from the time they left Egypt until this. And then he goes up the mountain to be with God, and he is gone, not for one day or two days or a week, but he's been gone now for over a month, for 40 days. And the people began to grow restless. What's happened to Moses? Perhaps they think they'd seen the, the cloud covering Mount Sinai. They'd heard the lightning. They'd seen the storm. They'd heard the trumpet blast. Perhaps they've come to the conclusion that Moses has been consumed by God himself. But regardless, they're tired of waiting, and they asked Aaron to make them an idol. Now remember, folks, this is less than two months after they saw the the glory cloud covering the top of Mount Sinai, and after they heard the very voice of God pronouncing to them the Ten Commandments, the second commandment of which says, you shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. So God had said, less than two months before, in his own voice to these people, do not make any idol that represents me. And they ask Aaron to do exactly that because that's what they know. That's what they had known as a people for 400 years in Egypt. Moses is gone, and so Aaron obliges them. Verse 2, Aaron said to them, "'Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me.' Then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, "'This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt.'" Now, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made a proclamation and said, "'Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord.'" Now, notice that what's going on here is not the replacement completely of the true God. Rather, it is syncretism. They declare this molten calf to be representative of the true God who brought them out of Egypt, and Aaron seals it clearly in verse 5 when he says, tomorrow 
Having completed this calf, tomorrow will be a feast to, notice in your Bibles, the word LORD in all caps. That's God's personal name. Tomorrow will be a feast to Yahweh. This is the sin of idolatry in which the idol worship that they had known in Egypt overlays and completely taints and corrupts the worship of the true God who brought them out of Egypt. And all they knew about how to worship that they'd learned in Egypt was to do so as the pagans had done, and that's exactly what begins to happen. Their feast, their feast to the Lord becomes a drunken orgy. Notice verse 6. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink. They have a feast. They drink too much. And they rose up to play. The Hebrew word translated play can include and likely does here include drunken, immoral activities that often went along with pagan worship in the Old Testament era. In verses 7 to 10, we go back up to the mountain, and there Moses is completely oblivious to what's happening in the camp. He's with God. He's been there for 40 days, and God tells Moses what's happening in the camp and threatens to destroy the nation and to rebuild a nation from Moses. And of course, beginning in verse 11, And running down through verse 35, we read Moses' famous intercession on behalf of the people. And in response to that intercession, we see God's measured judgment on their sin. Down in verses 27 and 28, we read, And he said, Moses said to the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put on his sword, put his sword on his thigh, and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp, and kill every man his brother, and every man his friend, and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Out of probably close to 2 million people, only 3,000 died as a result of this activity. Who were these 3,000? Likely, they were either the leaders of the rebellion or they were those who, even confronted by Moses, refused to repent and were absolutely stubborn in that rebellion. And so God judges, but rather than wipe off the nation, He instead measures out his judgment, and 3,000, the leaders or the unrepentant, are killed. That brings us to chapter 33. In the first 11 verses of this chapter, we learn that in addition to the killing of the 3,000, there were other consequences for their sin. God had promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that their descendants, these people, would inherit the land And God promises again that He will fulfill that obligation. But as a consequence of their sin, in chapter 33, verses 1 to 3, the Lord told Moses that He would not accompany them to the land. Notice verse 2, I will send an angel before you, and he will drive out the people of the land. Verse 3, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst because you are an obstinate people and I might destroy you 
on the way. God says, I'm not going out of protection for you. In response to that tragic news, in verses 4 through 6, God demands and the people respond in obedience and express their repentance and the fruits of that repentance. God says, listen, you, I'm the one who allowed you to, to enrich yourselves from the, the things that the Egyptians own, the golden bracelets and all these things that you wear, and you chose to fashion those into an idol. And so as an expression of your repentance, as the fruit of your repentance, I want you to put those things off of your body so that you're not reminded of that and tempted to do it yet again. By the way, that is a powerful reminder to us. It's one thing to come to God and confess your sin and ask His forgiveness. It's another thing to show the fruits of repentance. What can I do, God, that will show I'm serious about cutting this sin out of my life? In verses 7 through 11, we learn that at this point, God's presence is still with them, but even then, His presence was outside the camp. Moses had pitched a tent probably his own tent outside the camp. The tabernacle had not yet been completed. And there was God in a tent outside the camp. That's where everyone who wanted to seek God went. That's where the presence of God was manifested. Folks, this was a graphic illustration of the fact that separation comes when there is sin. Separation comes when sin comes between the sinner and God. That is always true. This is a reminder to us that where there is unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our lives, listen closely, when there is unconfessed, unrepentant sin in our lives, there is just as real a separation between us and God as there was between the, those who lived in the camp and God who was outside the camp. Regardless of how spiritual we think we are or how close to God we think we feel. You know, a lot of people who are living in unrepentant sin think they're spiritual, think they have a close relationship with God. Let me tell you something. If you're living in unrepentant sin, you are separated from God. That's the ominous backdrop for God's sermon on His name. It's in the context of the sin of God's people that one of the most profound passages in all of Scripture occurs. Have you ever wondered how God responds to your sin? Well, we're going to see it in this passage. But first, let's consider, secondly, three audacious requests. Three audacious requests the prayer of God's mediator, that is Moses. We see this in chapter 33, verses 12 to 23. Let's begin by looking at the three requests themselves. Moses here makes three breathtaking requests of God. First of all, he requests for the promise of God's presence. Go with us, he asks God. Go with us. Notice verse 12. 
Then Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you yourself have not let me know whom you will send with me. Moreover, you've said, I have known you by name, and you also have found favor in my sight. The angel of God's presence, as Isaiah refers to him, or the angel of literally God's face, is what it says in the Hebrew, had accompanied the Israelites so far on their journey from Egypt. In fact, it was this this mysterious figure who had appeared in the burning bush in chapter 3, verse 2. It was this mysterious person who had appeared in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud, according to chapter 14, verse 19. It was this angel in whom was the name of God who was to go with them and protect them, according to chapter 23, verses 20 and 21. This was the the mysterious person known throughout the Old Testament as the angel of the Lord, the angel of Yahweh. This one exercised the prerogatives of deity. In fact, you will find him at times being called God and often accepting and receiving the worship of, of men and women. In fact, the angel of Yahweh, this angel of his face, this angel of his presence was in fact God himself. If you want to see that in the Scripture, you can compare two passages. If you look at Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, there you discover that Yahweh was going before his people in the pillar of cloud by day and in the pillar of fire by night. It was God, his personal name is used, who was in the cloud and the fire. Just a few verses later in chapter 14, verse 19, there it says, it was the angel of God who was in the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud. So what we have in this mysterious person who has accompanied them from Egypt is in fact a pre-incarnate appearance of the second person of the Trinity. The New Testament makes that very clear in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4, referring to this very period of time, the children of Israel in the exodus from Egypt and in the wilderness wanderings, we read this, they all drank the same spiritual drink for they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Messiah, was Christ. It was the pre-incarnate Christ who protected and sustained His people from Egypt to the promised land. But the golden calf incident had produced two unexpected outcomes. First of all, God had withdrawn His presence to outside the camp, verses 7 through 10. And, as we just read in verses 2 and 3 of this chapter, God had now said He would not go with them to the promised land. Instead, He's going to send an angel, not the angel of His presence, but an angel. And so Moses is concerned, and Moses wanted to know exactly who it was that would accompany them. If it was just an angel, then Moses asked God to change his mind and to go with them himself. In typical Middle Eastern style, Moses' first request was not direct in verse 12. 
But what he was really asking becomes clear if you look down at verses 15 and 16. Then he said to God, If your presence does not go with us, do not lead us up from here. For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Literally, the Hebrew text says, if your face does not go up with us, do not lead us from here. Moses wanted God himself to go with them. The same angel, that that mysterious divine person who had led them to this point in the cloudy pillar, he says, God, let him go. Let him accompany us. And he pleads for that on the basis of three things. Go back to verse 12. He pleads for it on the basis of the Word of God. You have said. He appeals for it on the basis of the choice of God. You have said to me, Moses says, I have known you by name. That is, God, you've said you've specifically chosen me. And he appeals on the basis of the grace of God. Verse 12, you have said, you have found favor in my sight. God, you've extended grace to me. That's what you've said. And on the basis of that grace, I'm making this request. Now, why was it important, so important to Moses that God himself went with them? Well, in verse 16, he tells us, it's because God's presence proves that Moses and the people of Israel had experienced God's grace. Notice verse 16, for how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people, is it not by your going with us? And secondly, God's presence proves that they were God's people. He goes on in verse 16 to say, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all the other people who are on the face of the earth. So Moses asked, who is going with us? And God's answer is, I am. Now, folks, this is such a powerful reminder of the power of intercessory prayer. Because remember, back in verse 3, God had said, I will not go. And in verse 14, he says, my presence will go. What happened? Well, clearly, it was God's plan from the beginning to accompany his people, but he had determined to do so in response to intercessory prayer, to hear Moses' prayer, and then to answer it and to respond and to say, I will go. It's a lesson for us on intercessory prayer. Pray for the people in your life. But it's more than that, because what happens in this passage is actually a reminder of the power of, listen carefully, the intercessory prayer of a God-appointed mediator, which is what Moses was. God had appointed him in this role as the mediator to go back and forth between God and his people. And when the mediator prayed, God heard and responded, folks, we have a mediator, and it's not Moses. It's the eternal Son of God, our Lord Jesus Christ, who intercedes on our behalf, and the Father always hears him. Verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. I have chosen you, and I have shown you grace. Now, what was this thing that God would do? Well, God's more complete answer 
comes in back in verse 14. Notice verse 14. He said, my presence will go with you. Here Christ assured Moses that he would accompany him, that that same visible symbol of the divine presence, the Shekinah glory cloud that accompanied them so far, would continue to accompany them. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part one of his series, God's Sermon on His Name. Tom will have part two for you on our next program, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. We also invite you to visit thewordunleashed.org, where you'll find other resources, including additional series from The Word Unleashed. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals just like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do so by visiting thewordunleashed.org. That's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory, explaining God's truth. 